I am really passionate, though, about innovation in construction and thinking yep. about we, how we catalyse innovation in construction because construction is one of the least digitised sectors in the country, but it's got one of the highest contributions to GDP. Welcome to this episode of the Business of Architecture and Design, where we rejoin our host, Isabel Tolland, Director of Aileen Sage Architects, and our guest, BVN's Ninochka Tichkowski who talks more about technological innovation and how architectural projects can be like supernovas and pulsars. And now, over to Isabel. Does that technology or technological interest play into all of your projects that you work on or not necessarily? In one way or another, I'd say it does. One of the things I'm sort of particularly passionate about and I kind of feel is that every single project has an opportunity in it. Every single project has a stretch and it's up to us to sort of work out what is that stretch and that could be around new technologies, it could be around the way we fabricate things, uh, it could be around recreating the client process or delivering, you know, working with a client on a new business model, which is things that we do. You know, work, we already work outside of architecture, developing a new product. It is finding those sort of gaps in what looks like what you think the brief is and what actually the brief could be. Um, I am really passionate, though, about innovation in construction and thinking yep. about we, how we catalyse innovation in construction because construction is one of the least digitised sectors in the country, yep. and but it's got one of the highest contributions to GDP. And I just, we can't keep doing things the way that we do things. And doing mass timber construction buildings we is fantastic. Uh, being able to think about how we do large-scale 3D printing, how we robotically fabricate, how we optimise the things we're doing, you know, they're all of huge interest to me because I think not only does it improve the outcome but it also we can create better outcomes for the planet and a whole range of different things it just it just it's kind of a no-brainer in my mind. Do you find that you need to educate clients to start thinking about these things? I think we need to educate clients I think we need to educate the industry um, I think the construction industry really needs to step up um, Do you think our industry and this construction industry in Australia is a bit behind in terms of other countries? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I mean, we're a we're an industry of concrete doing things the way that we've always done it. I think there is there are steps in innovations and there certainly are some contractors that are, are innovating, but I would say on the whole, we have a very small lens of innovation. Mm. Um, and that is to our detriment, I think. Do you think that um, architectural practices also in Australia maybe need to start collaborating and communicating more with each other about these things to try and push for that change with clients and, and industry? Yeah, I do. I think, I think there is a role to play for all of us in how we actually start to catalyse, mm. you know, the industry and mobilise kind of some thought leadership around those things. And it's something we've started to think more about, um, you know, and, and certainly a practice of our size. We, we have a bit more leverage in the market potentially than 
than others and so it, it you know it, it goes to it should be that we actually are trying to influence things positively where we can and help in that process and so that's something we're we're starting to think a bit more strategically about how we can actually do that and how how we can also help the architectural profession understand what's available to them and start to open up to what's available to them. Do you find that your international sort of offices are part of also driving this progress within our industry too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we have a kind of a slightly different view about how we have a global footprint, you know, and there's different ways of doing things, but we're less interested potentially in just going and being somewhere forever. And I sort of talk about the supernova effect, which someone said, but they're so devastating. Why do you talk about that? But um, the supernova effect is, you know, what, what we're actually quite interested in is um, how do we have a more agile global footprint? How do we follow energies that are existing in the world? So um, at the moment, our New York studio is primarily focused around space as a service and new models in commercial space, which is developing beyond that as well. And so we're partnered with Convene, which is sort of one of the top five global providers for space as a service and who mm-hmm. are reshaping the commercial market. Uh, and we're, uh, we're their innovation partner in right. New York globe for their global business. And so we're kind of interested in how we can go somewhere, have an Im- bring our particular skills to it, have an impact, and then like a supernova that might have a brilliant ending and maybe it just is, you know, after the supernova uh, happens, then there's something that's left called the pulsar, which is is sort of like it continues to pump the energy of the supernova, but in a much more sort of pulsated light way. And I don't know, we, we like to think about how we can how we can move around the world and follow in various energies and make a contribution. And that contribution may not be forever. So what was the impetus for BBN to open up some international offices and go global? For us, it's more about seeing opportunity of particular skills that we have and being able to bring those into other markets where we see there being gaps in that. And to some extent as well is that we're looking around the world and we're looking at what's going on globally and where the shifts are occurring and seeing how we can make a contribution to those shifts. So, for example, you know, the the New York studio focuses primarily on space as a service models um, and looking at the disruption around commercial space and that's a, a sort of a great city to to be in uh, to make that heavy to make a contribution to that but equally it's complemented by the work that we're doing in commercial disruption here in Australia and so we're we're being able to kind of cross-pollinate geographically our work that's really important to us as well so a bit like not just looking with inside architecture we also don't want to just look within one geography as well. Mm. And do you think then that similarly being kind of very open to change and evolution, you will perhaps shift some of those offices too over time? Yeah, I mean, for us, perhaps the idea of being somewhere forever outside of your, if you like, your home base is not the right model. Um, these days, we don't know how the world's going to change going forward. We don't know uh, where the energies are going to exist in the markets. We don't know how things are necessarily going to disrupt. So for us, it's more, we're much more interested in uh, following a pathway of energy to something, making a contribution and potentially 
that thing may die a natural death and we might move on from that market, but whatever we've been able to do there is going to make a contribution to where we're going to spring off to next. So the kind of idea of forever is not necessarily one that we're pursuing. In terms of talking about flexible workspaces, do you think that that is also quite important to encouraging or fostering a diverse workplace or gender and also just more generally diverse workplace as well? If you're interested in creating a practice or outcomes for any business that that are actually innovative and um, uh, relevant, I think you you need to have different points of view and you're not going to get different points of view if you just hire people that are just like you. So um, we we definitely look for diversity and um, across all kind of channels I suppose and we have I think at BBM we have about 42 different nationalities working within our studio Um, we have an age bracket that goes from about 78 to about 15 you know we're not ageist um, albeit we have probably more people in the kind of 30s and 40s Um, We've had people that have worked with us for six months or on contract and we've had other people that have been with us for 25 years. Um, And as a, you know, in terms of people type, we don't just hire architects, you know, where we we hire creatives, we hire film producers, we hire, we've got astrophysicists, mathematicians, um, programmers, all sorts of people. And actually, I think that's one of the really exciting things about being in the studio and we we have um we have something that we call getting to know you which is on friday nights and usually it's might be a couple of new people and someone who's been there for a while and they have kind of 10 minutes each to talk about themselves and it's it's incredibly fascinating to understand you know what people have done in their lives and what they do in their spare time and you know you still learn things about people who have been with you for a while so it's it's really it's all about making space for different people physically so, and culturally making space I think yeah in terms of those other professions or other creatives that you mentioned how does that work actually in terms of the company structure do they are they part time or do you have enough work in those kind of very or highly specialised roles that that enables yeah. them to be employed full time or how does it work most of them are full time. Um, Some of them will be on contracts for periods of time, but then, you know, they might, so they might be working on a research project or something like that, and they might come in on a contract basis for a while, and then, but we might sort of put them into a permanent role depending on what we have how that progresses um others uh might be con might be people that we sort of collaborate with and as a sort of a contractor um when we need it like we have an amazing filmmaker who comes in and does all our films and um he just does that on a contract basis we're very varied we have lots of different formats of the way we kind of enable people to come in and out of bvn and make a contribution do you think there are any roadblocks to women being better represented architectural firms and in leadership positions Yes, I do. I think I think the biggest roadblocks is the partnerships of existing organisations, to be honest. They have their hands on the levers and if they want to make a change, they can. And the amazing thing about most architectural practices is they're generally privately owned. We're not publicly listed companies where they're accountable to, you know, a large volume of public shareholders. You know, when you've got your hands on the levers, it's really up to you to make the decisions. And I... 
frankly don't know why people don't make more of those decisions, but mm. I think it's a decision that can happen very quickly, but also it, it requires a level of investment over time. You know, people people take time to build into those roles. If they're not mentored and nurtured um, through their career pathway to achieve that, mm. then, you know, you can't just sort of turn someone from something to something else overnight. You know, no. it requires kind of a level of nurturing. And, you know, for me, I remember a very particular moment where Lawrence Neal, we were doing a project together. It was one of the first ones I'd done at BVN and he handed me the roll of drawings. This is when we used to carry rolls of drawings around everywhere. And he said a good architect's always got to carry their own drawings. Take the drawings. <laughs> you know, now we probably carry our own laptops or something. Yeah. But but I think it's, you know, he, he was always pushing me forward. He was um, very respectful of women. You know, he always took me to the meetings. It's, it, you know, all of those things need to happen. Yeah. But really, it's just got to come from the top. Yeah. It's a top decision. Yeah. And if anyone says anything else, I think they're really kidding themselves. I mean, that's what it is. Did you come across any roadblocks for yourself in your kind of career path in BBN? I have to say not really, to be mm. honest. I mean, you know, I, and that's where I'm, you know, incredibly fortunate. I, I, I think the roadblocks I came across were probably um, more to do with, you know, me gaining my sort of maturing in my set of skills um, and also more from external forces rather than internal ones mm. but you know I was sort of incredibly um, lucky to so do you think that you have a nurtured pathway you changed quite a bit in that time like since that role in a leadership once you shifted to a leadership role quite early on in your career really mm. in your 30s say have you learned a lot in terms of particular skills and experiences that you've had that have made you an effective leader oh yeah I've had <laughs> I've, yeah definitely um and there's a lot to learn I yeah mean, some people it comes really naturally to and some people it doesn't I think for me the biggest challenge has been people and just understanding you know that not everyone that not everyone is the same as me and that everyone comes at things from different perspectives and mm. it's really important to try and have empathy for that and understand um, different uh, different approaches to things so that's been that's been a personal challenge of mine mm. and it's still a process of learning I mean there is you know we're in, I, I don't know I always feel like uh, there's still many more years of learning to be done and actually you know I love learning so I'm kind of happy about that but it, you know, we've definitely had my challenges. I think it hasn't definitely hasn't always been easy, mm. and it's a really quite a different set of skills that you need to add into your kind of yep. toolkit. Sometimes you require external help to do that and mm. find your pathway through that. Did you struggle, or did you find it very difficult in those early days to kind of? I suppose it, being quite young too, it must have been hard to get a certain level of respect not from both you know other people in the company, but also clients. Say, was that difficult to kind of assert that? leadership role? I don't think it was difficult to assert the leadership. I think it was just finding the right way to do it. It mm. was actually the, the thing that I needed to learn. Yeah, It was, again, it sort of goes back to uh, being more nuanced, more mature, more uh, have a deeper understanding about people and how they work and how they operate and mm. um, how you read situations, how you yep. might handle something, you know, how, how you can 
stop and think about various things and and then act. Um, I I mean, there's so many different things, but I I, I do think the people side of running a business is one of the key challenges. And um, it was never such a challenge for me on the project side. It was more sort of on the people side and growing my skills in that area. serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwer at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities, give you insights into working with international clients and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman. That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. So coming back more to sort of where the industry is going, what do you think will be the greatest disruptor to our industry over the coming years? I think it will be what I would call the fourth industrial revolution and um, industry technological changes to us as a profession. I think um, some of the other really critical things is there'll be disruptors that come at us from outside of the profession, like a a WeWork, for example, um, and they will change aspects of what we do um, and potentially even make some of what we do redundant if we don't uh, find ways to make a contribution to a new way of thinking. Um, Do you think any of those kind of changes are something in our industry that we should be concerned about? Oh, absolutely. I think I do genuinely get surprised that there are not more people concerned about those things and that where um, I also get concerned that we don't have our peak bodies focused on those things enough and they're not educating the profession enough and not educating um, more broadly around those things. I think even the universities are not educating enough in that regard. You know, it was only recently that I was doing a talk with a major university to try and help their educators understand what the changes were that were happening and how they needed to start addressing them in the way that they were teaching. So, you know, I think people are coming out of university and they still don't understand what the changes are in the world. And so not only are we... It's right across a whole range of um, parts of our profession that we're not addressing it and we're not addressing it enough and we're not addressing it with enough urgency. It's kind of interesting too in in the fact that education itself is changing, like the way that we actually educate people is shifting quite a lot as well. So, Mm. you know, I suppose not only is the content (laughs) needing to shift but also the way we teach um, is shifting at the same time. So it feels like there's a lot of things Mm. in flux at the moment. Um, Absolutely. I think and I, I think that's a really big one. Like if we could get all our graduates to come out being having a greater kind of lens and focus on the changes that are coming, I think that would be a huge benefit mm. to the profession. Yep. But I don't think we're getting that either. And yeah. so we Is that of, perhaps driving your interest in collaborating with institutions as well or academia? Uh, yes, I think they, they, I mean, they are always interested in us as well. They're mm. always fascinated about, wow, how do you do that? Or how do you get that done? Or, you know, how come yeah. you guys are able to do it that way? And what is happening out there? And as I said, sort of bringing those real world 
problems or understandings to the university is something they're really hungry for. Mm. So it's a really nice sort of place to be where we're both making a contribution to each other's understanding, which is really good. Yeah, well, it does feel feel like that is sort of the future a little bit, doesn't it, that where there is, or perhaps it was the past as well too, where there is more tie between or more connection between industry and Mm. and education actually, Mm. and it is perhaps where things are going and and should be going really by the sounds of things. Absolutely. How is the leadership team at BVN preparing to take advantage of disruption and ensure they remain to be one of the most successful businesses in the A&D industry? That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think we are probably one of the, uh, if I give you a couple of stats, we've done four major timber, mass timber construction buildings. We've done the first fully prefabricated facade system of the kind that we used at ANU in Australia. We're working with about five different property companies and new businesses in developing new business models for co-working and spaces of service. We're developing product, we're developing new technologies. I think they're all things that are kind of making contributions to us staying ahead of what is kind of business as usual architecture. So now some questions we regularly ask our guests. What is it that you now know that you wish you knew when starting out? Probably that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't really look at it like that because all the things that kind of I did that maybe weren't as good as they could have been or that probably, you know, were were in to some extent mistakes. I mean, I've learned a lot from those things and I think... So we sort of... We are a culmination of the experiences that we have along the way and I think that's probably what's actually helped me get to where I am now rather than it being something that's been a negative so I don't know I can't if you took them away you probably wouldn't be here what advice would you give to a new fledgling practice in Australia starting out today I would say think big I think there's a real problem in Australia with small practice thinking that they need to be small means thinking small and I think you can be a small giant and I totally aspire to that model you know I even get frustrated that the Board of Architects uh, teaches simple building contracts when really not that many people use a simple building contract anymore. And even as a small practice, you can still do um, a project which is beyond a simple building contract. But in some ways, we sort of constrain ourselves to this thinking that, you Mm. know, you're a small practice and therefore you've got these sort of set limits on what you can do whereas I think um, be small by all means but think big and um, you know be a small giant. What do you consider to have been your greatest challenge in your career so far and what did you learn from that? It's a really hard one I can't think of a single greatest challenge actually I think uh, I mean there's been a lot of them whether they're project challenges and you know you've I mean I think everyone who's an architect who'd be listening would understand how hard it is to deliver a project these days and um, you know there can be so many multiple hurdles that you can have within a project which are really difficult to overcome sometimes I don't know I don't think I've got a single answer (laughs) it's all a challenge (laughs) it's it's, you know every day is a challenge (laughs) each day conversely what do you consider to have been the greatest success of 
your career and what did you learn from that? Well, I sort of have the same view on the other thing. I, I don't think that there is a single success point. And I, for me, I, I, I don't even think, you know, what is success anyway? I think success is sort of the ongoing evolution of whatever you are, are or what you're doing of who you are in a way. So what might feel like a peak now might be just a small mountain later or it might have been your um, your high point yeah. <laughs> in context of the rest of your life that you've got to live. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have a single success point either. I think I'd like to think that it is sort of when I look back that it's about a body of work, thought, and uh, consideration about the world, actually, and engaging in the world and thinking about how, how we can continue to push forward into that and not be afraid of it. I think that's probably what I'd like to say is my success. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, now, this is five in five, where I'll give you one word, and if you could give us your off-the-cuff response as to what that word means to you. Mm -hmm. Success. Ongoing. Gender equality. Just do it. Disruption. Inevitable. Opportunity. Always there. Downtime. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> but needed. Yeah. Actually, I would say recalibration on that one. I actually okay. do really need downtime <laughs> and it is where I recalibrate. Yeah. yeah. So you've recently embarked on patenting some technology or a product. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So we're really interested in thinking about how we can develop potentially new product out of the work that we do and um, this this one came out of our own studio development so we very much use our own studio as a sort of an experimental lab in thinking about how we wanted to create this self-organizing mobility of desks and furniture and so on we actually had to solve the problem of how we could deliver high levels of data and power to each desk um, so we deliver about 15 gigabytes of data per desk and um, wireless isn't robust enough to do that but we couldn't have full mobility so all our desks are on wheels everyone can move around themselves but we could only get to that point by getting rid of all the copper cable in the studio got rid of all the cable trays um, we had to work with data specialists to um, deploy a full fiber optic solution for our studio so we've got one sort of i don't know um, five mil fiber optic cable that will serve that 15 gigabytes of data to eight desks and then we also needed to provide power but the question was how could we do that and allow people to self-organize beneath that this was sort of sparked on by the research project that we have started called Systems Reef, which is thinking about services infrastructure that exists in commercial office buildings differently and how we think about it as a services system. So what we had to do was think about how could we get that data and that power down to each desk. So we designed uh, a product called The Boom, and then that connects to an octopus and the octopus is really the kind of the powering it's, it's where the cable connects into and then everyone connects into the octopus and it connects eight cables to it which is why it's called the octopus so that system is something that uh, we didn't we could not find an answer to globally and that was something that from about 15 years of work in workplace we had never 
come across a solution that solved the issue of full mobility, not just a people, but a people and furniture. Mm. And so we wanted to find, we wanted to create, so we decided to create our own solution. So essentially that system of the boom and the um, the octopus um, has a provisional patent and we're in the process of doing a full patent for that at the moment. That's a global patent? That'll be Australia, US and UK. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the next piece of robotics research we're doing, we're actually looking at ductwork. And so that may lead to another patent on that. But also we've started to explore uh, a range of other products. So another one that we're looking at at the moment is around how you uh, look at collaboration and disruption and human productivity. So we've been uh, working on something over the last couple of years around that, which we may get to a productized point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then the sort of another adjunct of all of that is we're about to launch our own VR company, which uh, is BVN Real, and that's something we've been developing for about three years. And um, we're prob- we'll go live with that this year. So the practice, it sounds like, is really getting quite diverse in what they, um, not so much just an architectural practice, but a a lot more in innovation and product development even. Yeah, and I think really just being creative problem solvers. Mm. And so it is about how do we use that creative problem solving expertise and how that can, you know, how that can translate across, you know, product, services, um, architecture, cities, whatever it may be, I think, you know, that's really in effect what we are is is selling our ability to be creative problem solvers. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Nanochka, for your time and sharing all of your insights and um, experience with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Isabel. It's been really great to talk. To ensure your practice is ready to deal with the challenges that the industry will face in the next few years, register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural Business of Architecture and Design Conference, which will be held in Sydney on Monday the 11th of November 2019. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Business of Architecture and Design, the final part of Ninochka Tichkowski's journey through the Business of Architecture. Join us next time when we begin a whole new conversation with an industry expert and practitioner. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.